of Worship, your source for commentary and discussion on worship, theology, and culture. I'm your host, Dr. Jonathan Michael Jones. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Act of Worship podcast. This is Dr. Jonathan Michael Jones, and uh, talking about a theological issue today. This uh, podcast is entitled Act of Worship, but there is so much wrapped up within that. And uh, I try to focus on worship, theology, and culture, and at times have maybe more of one than the other. And we've had a lot of theological topics in the past few weeks. And uh, this week is something that many people may not be familiar with, so I'm excited to discuss it today. Uh, I'm going to be talking about God's covenant of grace and covenant of redemption and the similarities and distinctions between both. Um, you may be sitting there listening and going, I did not even know there were two distinct covenants. Uh, in fact, most of the time when people think of covenant and God's covenant, and specifically when you hear covenant of grace, um, they really think of it more in broad terms. Well, yeah, God has made a covenant and that's it. It doesn't go much beyond that. Um, but there are specific theologies and doctrines wrapped around these two covenants, and they are two distinct covenants, and I will get into that, the covenant of grace and the covenant of redemption. Uh, covenant theology really is its a common part of Reformed thinking, but this topic specifically, the topic of covenant, can be very convoluted and far-reaching. At the foundation, many people might simply assume that covenant theology centers around the various covenants of the Bible, and uh, many of you could probably name some of those covenants. For example, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, or even the New Covenant, which Jesus Christ himself references. Um but covenant theology really encompasses vastly more than the individual covenants manifested throughout history. In fact, Reformed thought, as expressed by John Calvin, really suggests that there are not multiple covenants, but that there is only one covenant of grace. And hear me, I am not uh, saying one covenant, but I am saying one covenant of grace. And I will explain why. But John Calvin would express that there is only one covenant of grace between God and his people, and it's manifested through various instances in history, and really it's finalized and made permanent in the new covenant. So this line of thought is clear when we view the Bible as a meta narrative rather than individual stories used for moral inspiration. The text of the Bible is the story of God and his people centered around Jesus Christ. And it's a story into which we fit today. In other words, we, the church, have been grafted into Abraham's blessing as God's people. And we are therefore adopted children of God and part of that story. So a unique aspect to covenant theology is the distinction between the covenant of grace, which I was just talking about, 
and the covenant of redemption. A lot of people do not think about or even realize that there are two distinct covenants, but there is evidence for both and distinctions between both. So, lest there be any confusion or false understanding, I am going to examine both the covenant of redemption and the covenant of grace regarding their similarities and their distinctions. Okay, so what are they? What are uh, or what is the covenant of grace and what is the covenant of redemption? So they're not the same covenant, so they really shouldn't be discussed in the same terms. So let's start with the covenant of grace. In recent years, covenant theology has become vital to my personal understanding of God's work and story. Um, my thoughts really begin to shift uh, when I realize that God's covenant with a people is above his covenant with individuals. And you've probably heard me talk about that many times, that God has covenanted first and foremost with a people, not individuals. So certainly in that, we might look to individual covenants, uh, some that I've already mentioned, the Abrahamic covenant, um, for example, when we discuss this theology. But even in the individual covenants, for example, the covenant with Abraham, these were manifestations of God's covenant with a people. In Genesis 3.15, when God told the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and her seed, as some translations say, will crush your head. God establishes this covenant. A chosen seed would come. And the covenant we see most saliently in Scripture is the covenant of grace. I'll get into the, the covenant of redemption later, but... It's the covenant of grace. When people think of the covenant God has made, they usually think of a covenant he's made between himself and his people. That is the covenant of grace. And included in that is the Davidic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the no, uh, uh, I mean, you name it. There are, uh, there are many covenants that we could point to uh, that are wrapped up within that covenant of grace. Moses, Abraham, David, uh, Noah, these are all within the covenant of grace. So those who are a part of this covenant of grace are children of God, as 1 John 3, 1 says. We are uh, children of God. Now, keep in mind that only the church possesses the privilege of being called children of God, okay? There are a lot of people who like to say everybody is a child of God. No, everybody is God's creation, but not everybody is... Uh, part of God's children. So from the time God cursed the serpent in Genesis 3 to the final page of Revelation and the end of time, God's covenant has been employed and will continue to be employed. So while Satan has often tried to thwart God's plan, he has not succeeded. But God has succeeded in redeeming his chosen people through a chosen seed from the lineage of David. So the church, we now stand as the blessing of Abraham. And this is the covenant of grace. God the Father has chosen a people. God the Son has redeemed the chosen people as his bride. And God the Spirit has called and guided the chosen people, namely the church. So the covenant of grace was initiated by God, but as with all covenants, it includes conditions which the other party, we the church, must abide. And so we are God's people. 
And we are members of the covenant which God has instituted out of his great love. So the covenant of grace then is the covenant between God and his people. Okay, that's the distinction there. Now let's get into the covenant of redemption. The covenant of redemption, that's what we refer to it in English, but in in Latin, it is referred to as the pactus salitus. uh, Salitus, the Latin, uh, which deals with salvation. It's different from the covenant of grace. So if you ever hear someone specifically referring to the covenant of redemption, it is likely that they know what they are talking about with covenants, okay? Um, If they say covenant of grace or covenant of redemption, it's very unlikely that they're using those terms unknowingly. They probably know that there is a distinction, okay? The covenant of redemption is different from the covenant of grace, In that, it is the pact made in eternity past between all three members of the Godhead regarding how the chosen people would be redeemed. And so the basis for the covenant of redemption is a three-way love relationship between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Out of love for the Son, the Father gives a people. Out of love for the Father, the Son redeems the people. And out of love for both the Father and the Son, the Spirit calls, convicts, and guides the people. So all actions in the covenant of redemption are born of and based upon love between members of the triune Godhead for each other. And so you might think, well, where's the biblical support in this? (laughs) And by right admission, there is not an explicit reference to the covenant of redemption. Um, Really, there's not an explicit reference to covenant of grace, although um, the story, the narrative of God's covenant is replete through scripture. But the covenant of redemption is a central part of Reformed theology. And so although the term covenant of redemption is not a biblical designation, the teaching that from before the creation of the world, the persons of the Trinity entered into a solemn pact to accomplish the work of redemption. The Father promising to give a people to the Son is his, is his inheritance. The Son undertaking to accomplish their, to accomplish their redemption, and the Spirit covenanting to testify to Christ and apply His redemption to the people's hearts. This is most evidently biblical. So according to the divine testimony, the the lamb was already considered as slain from the foundation of the world, Revelation uh, 13.8. So certainly this was the agreement to accomplish redemption, and it was established before history, time as we know it, began. So there's more biblical support, okay, uh, for the covenant of redemption by way of inference. Psalm 2, for example, it depicts Christ relating the terms of the covenant that the Father uh, had established with him. Isaiah 53, 10 through 12. These are Old Testament scriptures, right? It also speaks of the covenantal agreement between the Father and the Son in accomplishing the work of redemption. And in the New Testament, Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, gives a Trinitarian picture of the roles that each person of the Godhead undertook from eternity to perform. You can read those if you would like, but they point to these uh, narratives. So, moreover, the the Gospel of John really is the clearest portrait which points to the covenant of redemption as Jesus repeatedly speaks of the work given to him by the Father. And I could go on and on. John 15, 17 through 31. Um, John 7, 28 through 29. 
John 9, 4, John 10, 14 through 18, John 13, 3, John 13, 20, John 13, 31 through 33, uh, 32. I could go on and on. So lest someone questions the basis for the covenant of redemption, be mindful of the various areas of Christian theology, which really do not present explicit biblical support. For example, here's one that I strongly disagree with, actually, the age of accountability, which perhaps presents even less biblical support. And so what we have here are two disparate covenants, the covenant of grace and the covenant of redemption, of which there are both similarities and striking differences. So for the remainder of this episode, I'm going to discuss the similarities and the differences between both covenants. So first, let's talk about the, uh, the similarities. The similarities between the covenant of grace and the covenant of redemption. So there are three primary uh, similarities between God's covenant of grace and covenant of redemption that we need to address. So number one, first similarity is that both are initiated by God. Humankind does not initiate either covenant, nor is any human qualified and capable of initiating such a covenant with God. Think about the manifestations of God's covenant in Scripture, whether his covenant with Abraham, Moses, Noah, David, or even his people in the New Covenant. It is never initiated by humankind. How can someone who is dead in their sin initiate a covenant? And and I don't mean to chase a rabbit here, but this speaks to our role in salvation as well. When people say that you are saved because you accepted Christ, is that not a work? That because you did A, B happens. That is a work. No, we do not accept Christ. We receive Christ by his initiation and by his sovereign awakening. So salvation is initiated by him. The covenant of redemption, the covenant of grace, both are initiated by God. The covenant of redemption, the pact uh, between the members of the Godhead, while related to the salvation of God's people, does not include God's people in that covenant. We are not involved in that. It is thus initiated by triune God. And the covenant of grace, likewise, was spe- uh, while specifically between God and his people, it is initiated by God. And so we as his people, then, we merely respond. Both covenants are initiated by God. Another similarity, both covenants have God's glory in mind. The basis for the covenant of redemption is the threefold love relationship between Father, Son, and Spirit. In other words, it is centered around God's glory. The covenant of grace also aims at the glory of God. In fact, salvation is not made possible except for the glory of God. The church is not saved. Christians are not saved simply because God loves us enough to save us. That is not why we are saved. Paul says in Romans 8.29 that we are saved so that we might be conformed to the image of Christ. So many find it difficult to grasp the fact that God does not love simply to love, but for his own glory. 
So if something does not glorify him, he would not do it. Even the crucifixion itself glorifies God. Without sin, there's no judgment. Without judgment, there's no ultimate display of love through the cross. And without the cross, God's glory would not be revealed in its fullest since through the compatibility of both love and judgment, that is how God is glorified. Both were displayed on the cross, and both bring glory to God. So the covenant of redemption and the covenant of grace, then, are both intended to bring glory to God. A third similarity is both covenants are executed in love. The covenant of redemption really has been executed in love between all three persons of the Trinity, but the covenant of grace has been executed in love for the church. Both covenants bring glory to God. Exceeding love is displayed in the employment of the covenant of redemption and the covenant of grace. So both are executed in love. The covenant of redemption, love for the members of the Godhead, covenant of grace, love between God and his people. And so... We, the church, we are still a part of the effects of both covenants. Since the covenant of redemption deals with how the chosen people would be redeemed, the specifics of that agreement are seen in the covenant of grace, which God has initiated between himself and his people, us, the church. So God has redeemed his people from the beginning of time and continues to redeem the church today. So all believers have the privilege of experiencing the effects of both covenants and will do so throughout eternity as the bequeathed and eternally loved people of God. So those are the similarities. What are the, the distinctions between these covenants? There are, I think, again, three primary distinctions. Number one is the party being loved. So in the covenant of redemption, it's as simple as this. It is God who is primarily loved. Okay? In fact, the covenant of redemption doesn't even include human, humankind as a party. But it is made between the three persons of the Trinity alone. So it's God being loved in the covenant of redemption rather than the chosen people. Number two, the second distinction is the timing. The timing differs because the covenant of redemption occurred and it was made in eternity past, before time began. The covenant of grace was the plan within that covenant, okay? But it could not be made until the chosen people actually existed. So the covenant of redemption could be considered outside the bounds of time and space, while the covenant of grace cannot. The covenant of grace had to be made and exercised at a particular time and with a particular people. And so while both are eternal, the covenant of grace falls within the bounds of time and space, unlike the covenant of redemption. The third distinction and I think probably the most significant one is that one precedes the other. What I mean by this is the covenant of grace really is a derivative of and even dependent upon the covenant of redemption. Without the Trinitarian covenant of redemption in eternity past, the actual plan of humankind's, humankind's salvation, the covenant of grace, would not be possible. So the covenant of redemption is is primary and it is overarching and it is from what stems the covenant of grace. 
So following the eternal pact made between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God's people now share the benefits of the covenant of grace. So why does this matter? (laughs) What's the big deal? Why are we thinking about different covenants and does it matter? Well, it matters because of transformation. When we realize the covenant of grace and really the covenant of redemption, the result should be transformation. This is why covenant theology matters. A lot of many Christians are probably not familiar with the covenant of redemption or even covenant theology at all. The knowledge of both really though should change our lives. As people who have been covenanted by a loving God, knowledge of the covenant of redemption and the covenant of grace should allow allow us to realize God's desire for his own glory. And without that desire, the covenant of grace would not exist. And here's the thing, as his people in the covenant of grace, we have a responsibility. We are called to be transformed and changed as the people of God. God does not covenant with a people and then have no expectations for them. We play a role. We have a part in the covenant. It's a two-way street. So the covenant of grace is not the end, but it is means to an end. In other words, we are saved not as the end, but as the means of glorifying God. The pact made between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in eternity past is the cause of the blessing that we now hold, the blessing of being grafted and adopted into the chosen people of God. So our lives should be transformed not only because of gratitude, but because of a fervent realization that we are actively a part of the plan God instituted before time began. I don't know how that cannot be transformational. We are people who are a part of that. And as he changes us, the plan made in the covenant of redemption is working currently and presently and will for eternity. So for the church then, realizing the covenant of redemption and the covenant of grace should result in transformation. That is why this matters when we realize we are a part of the people of God. We hold the sole right to approach God because of the mediation of Jesus Christ. So hopefully this has been helpful. This has been transformational. Um, And as you think about these things, my hope and prayer is that it is not just knowledge, but that it it leads to um, doxology. If, If theology does not lead to doxology, then it has missed its purpose. And so hopefully this is life changing in some way. And uh, that is my hope and prayer, at least. I thank you for listening to the Act of Worship podcast. This is Dr. Jonathan Michael Jones. 